Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. The COVID-19 pandemic prevented a group-based partial hospitalization program from running in-person care due to social distancing guidelines. However, the crisis also simultaneously increased stress on families while decreasing their desire to hospitalize youth for a non-medical issue. Hence, the need for a partial hospitalization program remained high. Healthcare organizations worked diligently to create a secure telehealth platform to be delivered to patients in their home environments. This article describes the development and implementation of child and adolescent telehealth partial hospitalization programs in two U.S. states in response to COVID-19. These new programs were started in mid-March 2020 and changes were implemented over the next three to four weeks. Overall, patients and families have been receptive to behavioral health services delivered through telemedicine. While telehealth partial hospitalization programs are the most plausible solution to continue behavioral health care for these patients, some challenges were observed during this process. Besides procedural and technological challenges associated with creating a virtual setup, other difficulties include variable patient engagement, specific treatment-related challenges, and system-related changes. These challenges are addressed through psychoeducation, provision of online measures to assess treatment outcomes, and efforts to optimize parent engagement prior to treatment initiation for better treatment adherence. Initial experiences during a time of crisis suggest that telehealth partial hospitalization programs can be a viable long-term treatment option in the future during both a disaster and routine times to improve access for those who otherwise cannot take advantage of such services. Long-term effectiveness of these interventions still needs to be explored. ADHD and PTSD are prevalent comorbid neuropsychiatric disorders in children. This study investigated the impact of reminder-focused positive psychiatry on ADHD and PTSD symptoms, vascular function, inflammation, and well-being in adolescents with comorbid ADHD and PTSD. Eleven adolescents were randomized to either the reminder-focused intervention or trauma-focused group cognitive behavioral therapy. Eight participants completed the twice-weekly intervention for six weeks. The reminder-focused intervention was inclusive of positive psychiatry interventions on traumatic reminders and avoidance of negative cognition, vascular function, C-reactive protein, homocysteine, ADHD and PTSD symptoms, and neuropsychiatric measures were assessed at baseline and week 6. Subjects were followed for 12 months. A significant improvement in ADHD and PTSD scores and vascular function was noted at follow-up in both groups, but was more robust in the reminder-focused group. 
At the sixth week, a significant increase in scores for well-being and post-traumatic growth and a significant decrease in homocysteine and C-reactive protein levels were noted in the reminder focus group but not in the trauma focus group. Similar improvements continued in favor of the reminder-focused intervention at 12 months. No psychiatry, hospitalization, or suicide ideation was reported in either group at 12-month follow-up. The authors maintained that reminder-focused positive psychiatry is associated with improvement in core ADHD and PTSD symptoms, decreased inflammation, and increased well-being, vascular function, and post-traumatic growth, as well as a favorable long-term clinical outcome. This finding highlights the importance of the dual role of reminder-focused positive psychiatry in addressing vulnerability symptoms, as well as enhancing well-being in youth with comorbid ADHD and PTSD. There is a paucity of studies on treatment of childhood onset bipolar disorder and its associated comorbidities, which leads to a wide diversity of opinion on choice and sequency of treatment options. From December 2018 to January 2019, a graphic depiction of medications and weekly ratings of symptoms of mania, depression, anxiety, ADHD, and oppositional behavior that parents had rated on their nine-year-old child over a period of several years was sent to experts in child and adult bipolar disorder. These responding medical doctors, or MDs, rated a comprehensive list of medications that they would choose and with what priority to treat the child's now-improved mood but continued experience of mild to moderate symptoms of anxiety, ADHD, and oppositional behavior. In the whole group, the drugs most highly endorsed were lamotrigine, lithium, lorazidone, quetiapine, aripiprazole, and valparate. Among the antidepressants, 38% endorsed a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, 12% a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, and 27% bupropion. Of the child's MDs, 75% suggested increasing the 1 mg dose of risperidone, while few adult MDs suggested this. Conversely, 56% of the adult MDs suggested using Valparate, while only one child MD did so. There was little consensus on how to manage ADHD symptoms unresponsive to methylphenidate, 36 mg per day. How these treatment options were sequenced also varied wildly. There was wide variation in suggestions as to how to treat persistent symptoms of anxiety, ADHD, and oppositional behavior in a child whose mania and depression had been brought under good control. The author surmised that this great diversity in recommendations among experts in child and adult bipolar disorder stems at least partially from inadequate literature on treatment and that new emphasis on funding and conducting studies on efficacy and effectiveness is needed. Bipolar disorder is a complex mood disorder that is often treated in primary care settings. Bipolar disorder has a chronic course with episodic manic, hypomanic, and depressive symptoms. Of these, depressive symptoms are the most persistent and difficult to treat. 
Depressive symptoms of bipolar disorder are especially disabling and significantly impact quality of life. When patients present with depressive symptoms, it is important that clinicians screen for previous manic or hypomanic symptoms to determine if the depressive episode is part of bipolar disorder or major depressive disorder so that appropriate treatment can be initiated. Cariprazine, a dopamine antagonist partial agonist, is one of only two agents that is FDA-approved to treat symptoms of both bipolar 1 mania and depression. To evaluate the effect of cariprazine on symptoms of bipolar depression, the authors of this article conducted a post-hoc analysis of pooled data from three clinical trials. Their investigation showed that patients with bipolar depression who were treated with the medication had greater improvement across the range of depressive symptoms than did patients who were treated with placebo. The medication also had a favorable safety profile and was generally well tolerated. Since cariprazine has demonstrated its effect across the symptoms of bipolar 1 mania, the authors maintain that these results expand the concept of broad efficacy to include the symptoms of bipolar depression. When treating patients with bipolar 1 disorder, a condition with changeable and wide-ranging symptoms, primary care providers may find advantages with cariprazine since it has broad efficacy against symptoms across the full spectrum of the disorder. This manuscript was supported by funding from Allergan prior to its acquisition by AbbVie. Studies indicate that patients tend to develop chronic tension headache as a response to stress. The present study investigated the relationship between headache and the events that cause childhood traumas and defense styles, which could be considered as a significant source of stress in individuals with tension headaches. 50 patients diagnosed with tension headaches and 50 healthy controls were included in the study. All study participants completed a sociodemographic data form prepared by the researchers, as well as the Childhood Trauma Questionnaire and the Defense Style Questionnaire. Dramatic experiences such as emotional abuse, physical abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, and sexual abuse were significantly higher in the patient group compared to the control group. The total score of immature and neurotic defense styles was higher in the patient group than in the control group. However, the mature defense styles total score was significantly higher in controls than in patients. A positive correlation was found between childhood trauma scores and immature and neurotic defense style scores. According to the authors, the findings indicate that traumatic experiences during childhood were more frequent in patients with tension headache compared to healthy individuals. Furthermore, these patients had difficulty coping with stress and inappropriate defense styles were employed in response. Amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, physicians from multiple disciplines have been designated as frontline doctors. This unforeseen situation has led to a wide range of psychological problems among these healthcare workers. 
The objective of this study was to evaluate the mental health status of pan-Indian frontline doctors combating the COVID-19 pandemic. A cross-sectional observational online questionnaire-based study was carried out among frontline doctors involved in the clinical services and outpatient departments designated COVID wards, screening blocks, fever clinics, and intensive care units of tertiary care hospitals in India. The nine-item patient health questionnaire and the perceived stress scale were used for assessment of depression and perceived stress in respondents. The results of 422 respondents revealed a 64% prevalence of symptoms of depression and a 45% prevalence of symptoms of stress among frontline COVID-19 doctors. The majority of respondents were postgraduate trainees. Multivariate regression analysis showed working six hours per day or more was a significant risk for moderate or severe perceived stress, while single relationship status and working six hours per day or more significantly contributed to the development of moderate, moderately severe, or severe depression. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken a serious toll on the mental health of clinicians with a high prevalence of depression and stress among doctors actively engaged in COVID care. Regular screening of medical personnel involved in the diagnosis and treatment of patients with COVID-19 should be conducted to evaluate for stress, anxiety, and depression. Recognition and treatment of the unmet psychological needs of these frontline doctors should be addressed. Although it's impossible to identify all individuals who may attempt suicide, it is important to understand factors that may increase the likelihood, especially during the COVID-19 crisis. The objective of this article is to expand knowledge with regard to suicide prevention during the COVID-19 pandemic among the elderly population by providing recommendations for interview strategies using three suicide theories. The authors present two geriatric suicide cases, one low lethality and one high lethality, and characterize them according to three suicide theories the interpersonal theory of suicide, the three-step theory, and the hopelessness theory of depression. In crisis intervention, the clinician's interview must match the intrinsic belief of the suicide attempter to enable engagement and rapport. Use of different aspects of the three suicide theories can be useful, but are dependent on the emergent nature of the attempt. The need for identification and treatment of those with mental health issues, especially among the elderly population, and collaborative multidiscipline management teams is increasing during the current global pandemic. Specific interview strategies are needed when engaging with elderly suicidal patients, and suicide prevention in this population is worthy of strong public attention. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, many activities have stopped and individuals have been forced to stay at home for prolonged periods, which can have a negative impact on overall health and trigger stress and psychological disorders such as depression and anxiety. The objective of this study was to highlight 25 cases of unusual frequent urination associated with abnormal sleep 
and their relation to staying at home for a prolonged period due to the pandemic. This retrospective cross-sectional study included 25 patients who complained of frequent urination of greater than three times per hour and abnormal sleep during the last four months, which was from January to April 2020. These patients were evaluated for all possible differential diagnoses. All of the patients had frequent urination greater than 10 times per day and abnormal sleep, but had normal kidney function tests and other investigations. None of the patients had been doing any physical activity at home. All of the patients said that both sleep and urination frequency improved after leaving home for a while to engage in activities, such as visiting friends, walking, or playing sports. This improvement occurred within two nights of leaving the home. However, the majority of patients improved after the first night. Homestaying syndrome is an undefined syndrome of unusual symptoms of abnormal sleep and frequent urination greater than three times in one hour. This syndrome is associated with staying at home for a long period of time and is easily resolved by doing any activity such as exercise or visiting friends. While this syndrome is rare, it may be more prevalent now due to the COVID-19 pandemic, which forces people to stay home for infection prevention. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Steed Family Memory Clinic. In this issue, we highlight the case of Ms. A, an 82-year-old woman complaining of occasional short-term memory loss and associated feelings of sadness. She reports difficulty recalling recent events and details of conversations, finds herself repeating stories, and sometimes has difficulty understanding others, making judgments, and multitasking. Does Ms. A have a major neurocognitive disorder such as Alzheimer's disease or Lewy body disease? Could another health issue be affecting her cognition and function? What would you expect to see on the neurologic examination? And what treatment would you recommend? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this case in this instructive CME offering. Have you ever seen a toddler who ingested a potentially toxic agent? Have you been uncertain about the dangers of psychotropics and other agents in the pediatric population? Have you wondered whether antidotes exist to reverse such toxidromes? If you have, then the case vignette and discussion presented in this issue's Rounds in the General Hospital offering should prove useful. The authors present the case of a 22-month-old boy who was brought to an emergency department after ingesting an unknown amount of the psychotropic flibanserin approximately 30 to 40 minutes before his arrival. They discuss the details of his hospitalization, as well as other factors that should be considered in the unintentional overdose of a child, such as neglect. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to read articles and features related to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
physicians on the front lines in the United States and around the world discuss the challenges faced by healthcare providers in a variety of settings, such as intensive care units, psychiatric wards, and community mental health centers. We feature a variety of case reports on topics such as the increased incidence of anxiety and stress in children and adolescents and the prevalence of panic disorder, mania, psychosis, and suicidal ideation in the general population. Physicians also report on outcomes with novel therapeutic approaches for treatment of COVID-19. We are constantly posting new material related to the pandemic to give you the most up-to-date and timely information. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention, for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you'll join me for the next installment of the PCC podcast, Your Place for CNS Soundbites.